the curse of knowledge is that it closes our mind to what we don't know. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sasson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Robert Umfress. Robert goes as the fashion nerd on Instagram, and as you look at everything that he posts, it's very deep into the world of fascia. And I really love bringing coaches like this on where they they seem to have an expertise and experts kind of get shit on in the the world of sports performance a lot because it's all right. This guy say he's just a researcher. He's just in this world. He's just doing these things. And there's a bigger picture. And while there is a bigger picture, and I think we can all realize that I really believe that you need to have people really, really deep into rabbit holes that are really pushing the field forward in one aspect, one realm of the field, and you can grab from those pieces. And that's what I really love doing with coaches like Rob and how he's going about the world of fascia and really trying to one of the messages that he continued to bring up during this podcast was how can we make this digestible? How can we not go into the world of fascia? And a lot of times you'll talk about fashion. Somebody's doing some weird thing on a BOSU ball. And it just seems like like not a realistic exercise seems very Instagram friendly. And what coach does an amazing job of is being able to dive us into this rabbit hole, but then apply it to real world situations, which I, I found amazing. You're able to go the the research side and the almost clinical side of where we're working with injuries. And then he's able to give us really tips of what can we be doing on the front end as strength coaches. And even if it's not on the front end, if we have an AI athlete and we don't have access to somebody like himself that is able to solve these issues, what are some things that we can start to implement into our workouts that we're kind of missing the boat on? And that was something that I really much appreciated on this podcast. I took a bunch of notes and I'm excited for you guys to dive into the fashion nerds world and see where it takes you. Hopefully you guys get something out of this. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life, and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, You'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with a Yoakum Strength coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines that includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Marcus, you know what time it is. Hit that intro music. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite level guests to unravel what high performance really is. All right, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. We uh, we were chatting through uh, Instagram a little bit, and y- your uh, Instagram by our Instagram handle is the Fashion Nerd, and I, I kind of love that. I-, I saw that right away uh, on Instagram. I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. Checked out some of your posts, and just so much awesome knowledge on the like the fascial system. And you and I talked before we started recording. It's like as soon as fascia is brought up, it's kind of like 
some people are like scared off by the word. It's like, Ooh, too woo woo. And the other half is just way too into it. And it's like you said, like just training one part of the a foot and then pretending like it's the answer to everything. But I'm kind of interested in how you got to becoming the fascial nerd. What is the background? How did, how did you get to this point in your career where you're at today, where fascia is your kind of, um, your expertise? Yeah. Um, uh, it's all I think about, like, honestly, everything I, I try to keep relating it back to that and maybe it, it narrows my scope a little bit too much, but I believe in expertise. So, uh, it, it kind of started so a long time ago, um, about, I don't know, 25 ish years ago, I was a fat kid growing up and I, I wasn't happy being a fat kid. I was inactive. I just ate too much and I didn't like the way I looked. So I started at like 12 years old, um, had my dad buy me like one of those cheap weight benches with like the, the, the weights that were filled with sand. And like, uh, me and my friends would just start like lifting weights in my, like kind of off to the side of the living room. Um, and I started cooking for myself, like making like healthier foods based on whatever you saw in like muscle and fitness magazine. Like, cause that's what we had at the time. It was like no internet to tell you what to do back then. Uh, so like all through high school, then started getting stronger, getting stronger. Um, and then went to college, started getting more into powerlifting. Um, but I kept hurting myself. Like I kept having back pain. I was only like 23, 24 years old and didn't understand what was going on. Um, and this was like 2008, 2009, uh, when the like foam rollers started becoming a thing and people started talking about self myofascial release. And I had no idea what this was mean or what it meant, but I knew that when I use a foam roller on, you know, like my calves, my hamstrings would all of a sudden be a little bit better. Um, so I was, I was constantly playing with, you know, the, the kind of Kelly Surratt way of like smashing tissues and doing all the foam rolling and all that. And, um, and so I, I kept doing that for a couple of years. Um, was kind of dipping my toes into like strength and conditioning coaching. Uh, and I had a really great opportunity with, uh, Dan John. So, um, he's a old school strength coach and I moved to California and I was like, Hey Dan, uh, if, if you have some time, could I come and just hang out and learn a little bit from you? He's like, here's my phone number. Call me when you're here let's get together. So I was super intimidated by that. Like he, he was kind of a superstar to me. And so I, I called him, we had a conversation and he's like, we're doing this kettlebell thing every week. So I started training kettlebells with him and I had a lot of really great opportunities, but I was young and I was immature and I was absolutely not ready for these opportunities yet. And, uh, I kind of squandered that opportunity and then it just became like doing a couple of side jobs here and there. And then I started working at a climbing gym and climbers always have injuries. Uh, so elbows, shoulders, big fingers, all that stuff, injury prone. So what I would do is help my, my coworkers help other people at the gym, like treat themselves. So like they'd have elbow pain. I'd be like, Oh, you know, just like massage this part on yourself for a while. Uh, do it every day, do it before you climb. And a lot of people were like, Hey, that's really helping. Um, so while working at the gym, I had a friend who wanted to do this coffee startup thing. Cause I love food too. That's like a big part of my background. I mean, I was a fat kid growing up. So of course I, <laughs> so, uh, he had this idea for this, this novel way to kind of cold brew coffee. So we started working on that together and it didn't work out the way that we wanted it to, but 
him and I, like, I would always do a little bit of like soft tissue work on him, just kind of like pushing on things like, uh, wrapping his shoulder with like a floss band and like mobilizing it and all that. And so when it didn't work out, he's like, you know what, you've always been really good at helping people with their pain. You should do something with that. So like two weeks after that, I was like, you know what? Okay. I signed up for the first available massage school, uh, course that I could. I started like a week later and I was all in then. So this was like 2017, I think I started that. Um, and that just, it totally changed my life. Uh, one of my mentors in school, she gave me this book. Uh, she already knew I was like into Tom Myers and anatomy trains and fashion and all that. And I was still trying to understand it. I couldn't quite wrap my head around it yet because I hadn't practiced with it enough, but she gave me this book, um, that was a book about the technique that I currently practice. It's called fascial manipulation. And she gave it to me. It had like, uh, pictures on like how to treat it. So I had like three to five people every week that I'd, they let me just work on them for free. I was like, Hey, I'm trying to learn this stuff. Uh, so while I was in massage school, I was just working on people constantly and I was doing it completely wrong. Like that, <laughs> like I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I knew where the points were that I was supposed to work on. So that came in handy later when I actually went to take a workshop with these people. And I took the workshop in the beginning of, uh, 2019. And that was on a weekend, the Monday I came back to work and I had a couple of clients that were really good friend clients. Uh, and I was like, Hey, I learned this new thing. Do you think we could try it? Started trying it on them. They all found it really helpful. So then from then on, I was like, all right, we're just doing that. So I did all that technique then on them, stopped doing any other kind of body work on them and had some really cool things happen. Uh, I had people in their seventies who couldn't lift their arm up all of a sudden after a couple of sessions was able to get full control of his shoulder, uh, after not being able to move his arm for like 15 years or something ridiculous, uh, people who had just recurring paresthesia. So like numbness, tingling in their hands go away after a couple of sessions. Um, so just some crazy things that were happening and I was attributing it all to the fashion because fascial manipulation was what the thing was. Um, and with it, so a lot of massage work is you kind of deep tissue, you're pushing as hard as you can into the muscles. You're, you're trying to go deep into the muscles. Whereas with fascial treatments, you don't want to go into the muscle because the, the deep fascia, one of the layers of the fascia actually sits right on top of the muscle. So if you go into the muscle, you're now affecting a lot less of the actual deep fascia and how the muscles can slide and glide and coordinate with each other. And you're just putting extra pain and pressure onto people that don't actually need that to solve the issues that, that we think we're solving. Um, so been doing that. And in 2018, uh, there's a group called the Fascia Research Society. So they put on a Congress every three years. And in 2018, I flew to Berlin to attend this, this Congress, uh, cause it's every three years. I was like, I can't miss this opportunity. And I was like, totally jet lagged, totally sleep deprived, like delirious the whole time. But it was incredible. Like, and thankfully we got recordings of it afterwards. So I could actually go back and understand it. Uh, but that, that changed my life because it was all about fascia for three days and just learning how many different aspects there are to it from pure health to performance to all that. It just, it seems like fascia has a role in, in most things. We just don't quite understand how they all connect yet. And I, I like, it's kind of, 
cutting edge. It's, it's something that over the last like 20 years, it's been an exponential increase in the amount of research that's been done in fascia. So we still don't know a ton about it, but there's a lot of promising research that is kind of showing trends. And with any kind of clinical thing, the clinical practice has to kind of guide where the science goes. And I mean, there's a lot of us who have been experiencing really good results with working with the fascia and just because science hasn't caught up yet doesn't mean, you know, we're going to wait or abandon that or anything. So fast forward to now, um, the fascia research society, uh, created a new board and I applied for one of the positions and I'm on the board. So I am super fortunate to be a part of, of that. And just with what I consider to be heavy hitters in the fascia world and researchers and professors. And, uh, it's just, again, that's, that's all I, I really think about and do. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I got here. <laughs> and with this, like the, this journey, you're, you're, you're talking about kind of like the, the deep understanding of fascia. Yeah. You, you've gone to these conferences, you've actually practiced with it for years. How are we like, what's the biggest misunderstanding in your views of the fascia word? Like people bring up fascia. It's half the time. It seems like they're not even talking. Like it's just a buzzword to say in like with your expertise, when you're, you're listening to these conversations, you're seeing it on social media, what's like the number one way we are misinterpreting it or using it in the wrong way. Oh, I, stretching. I, I think, I think stretching is where it, it misses a lot. Um, at least from the model I use, uh, static stretching doesn't make any sense. Um, unfortunately, like if we're talking about it on the neurological aspect, where you're like breathing, like, uh, so like proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, uh, PNF stretching, where you're doing a little bit of a contraction and then relaxing and sinking deeper into your stretch. So that's totally in, in my thought process, it's working with how the neurology is going. So if you are a twitchier person, you know, you're kind of a high anxiety, high energy person, you might be someone who kind of holds your tissues a little stiffer a little bit more brain going on with it and doing those stretches will then allow you to downregulate all that stuff so that now you get a little bit more length. Uh, but there's always a reason why we don't have this length. And it's my thought that we stiffen these areas up where our brain does it because we can't stabilize whatever the end range of motion is on these things. Um, and I don't know that there's a lot of proof to show that, but that's just what makes sense to me. And I see when I do ISOs and things like that, they're always at end range. And when we can make the end range of motion uh, stronger and more stable, it just seems like the mobility follows. Well, and is that, then when you're looking at the stretching, is that almost like a, almost a cheat code that it's like, we're skipping a step, you know, like, is that, is that how you view it? It's like, we're skipping a step because we don't want to actually fix something. We just want to, we just want to see something instantly. Is that kind of what you're looking at it as? Yeah. So, so stretching will have this immediate effect, right? You'll, if you're doing a good stretching program after you stretch, you will feel better and you'll, you'll have more flexibility, right? Maybe you'll get an extra inch or two to touch your toes or whatever. Uh, but this is all just mechanoreceptors downregulating and the whole fascial web relaxing. So when we talk about sports performance, I don't want the fascial web to relax. I don't want that to happen. I want stiffness in the, the fascial, the whole system, uh, because that's going to transmit force. 
that's going to be that bounciness that you get when you see these freak athletes that have very little muscle. Uh, so like you'll see it in like tennis, you'll see it in basketball, you'll see it in the sports where the guys don't have to have a lot of mass, but they are still super powerful, still super fast. Uh, it's because their fascia is stiff and it can transmit that force. So it's more rebounding. It's, it's more a movement like kind of gazelles would have. Um, so if we start stretching, we have the possibility of overstretching certain areas of the fascia web. Uh, and if we have areas of the fascia, so if we think of like knots, right, we think of muscle knots or trigger points or things like that in our body. Um, so the way I see those, a lot of times they're areas where the fascia is kind of matted together. So it, it's not exactly stuck, but it has some friction in it so that it makes it a little harder for each layer of the fascia to slide. So fascia, when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about the deep layer of fascia. So there's superficial fascia and there's deep fascia. The deep fascia seems to be the more uh, kind of mechanical transmission of forces and has to do more with posture and uh, force transmission and all that kind of stuff. So with that deep fascia getting stuck, then if we're stretching, we're not actually stretching the area that is problematic because we can't stretch through that stuck layer. We're just adding extra length onto each side of that, which gives us this illusion that we've now made change, made progress in it, but we haven't actually changed the quality of the fascia or how the fascia is able to move. And if we don't do that, the fascia can't coordinate, can't do these complex gestures that we need to do specifically for sports movements. And when we're looking at these gazelles, like you said, like these just beautiful movers and it's what we, we all watch them. We all see it. We all want to be like that. Like we want to be like that athlete. And then our solution to that is to go, especially in the American football world, we'll go bulk up. We'll, we'll go lift more weights. And this was my entire like high school collegiate, like training career. That, that was all it was is I would see this beautiful mover and I'd be like, all right, if I lift more weights, I can be like that. And it, I mean, it doesn't make any sense if you, if you're looking at that in any like normal world, but like that is the culture of sports performance. So how do we become like that gazelle? How do, how do we actually go about this and approach this in the, the fascial method and the tensegrity method rather than the, the muscle-based kind of model that is currently the, the approach to sports performance? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, we have to accept the tensegrity model because uh, that, <laughs> that's still something that if you talk to most people who have any knowledge of biomechanics, they're still really hesitant to accept tensegrity and it kind of gets stuck because tensegrity started as this purely, um, like, like Buckminster Fuller and, uh, I think Ingber was his name. And they were looking at how these, these rods and these wires were able to create these really strong light structures. Um, but when we look at bio tensegrity, we have to now think about, these structures as these constantly evolving things that uh, every time we move, the structure has to change a little bit, not just change or not just shift where the tensions are, which is what happens in a normal tensegrity structure. So we're an ecosystem, we're not a machine. A lot of people won't yet accept biotensegrity as a model. I don't think it's been explained really well. I, I still only have partial understanding of it. It's, it's very complex. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't quite get it as well as I would like to yet, but that's the first step of how can we do this? Well, we have to start at least teaching this and 
having more people that are interested in mechanics think about the biotensegrity model and think about all the good parts of it so that we can possibly apply these principles to other things. Um, I think that's, that's a big roadblock that's going to happen. But the other thing that can be done to address that is just continuing to think about, which I'm seeing a lot more of like muscle slings um, and think about these, how we don't have any muscles or movements that occur in isolation. It's impossible to only get your biceps to fire when you're doing bicep curls, even though we call it bicep curls, the bicep is still attached to the shoulder. So if we're doing a bicep curl, we're still going to get some kind of activation with having to stabilize the scapula, uh, having to make the, the glenohumeral joint stabilize. Um, so there's, there's so much to it that that can be done. And I think isolation is the first thing that needs to go away. If we want to start thinking about how to, how to actually incorporate this stuff. Um, cause it, it doesn't help anyone. It might be a good start for if we have a injury and we're trying to get a muscle to fire that isn't firing. Um, but there's really, really small scenarios where isolation I think is a good thing. Um, and how to keep going back to integrating movements into the whole is how we get the fascial system to work. Is there a way you have found getting the message across that it's not individual muscles? Uh, it's not individual pieces to like make sense. Like for me, it was like anatomy trains and seeing it for the first time as a connect, like I kind of understood that and it made sense. Like when I moved, but like visually seeing that it was, it was the first time. And that's the kind of crappy part too, is you go through all these years of college, uh, even in high school, you had like anatomy class, but you never saw anything. Like it was like, everything that you were taught was it's individual, it's separate. It's you train that muscle individually. And then you look at the like field of sports and it's like, well, that doesn't really make sense, but the, this is what the anatomy textbook's telling me. And then you finally see it on the, in the other way of everything is connected. And I'm like, it was a light bulb moment for me, but have you personally found in talking and having these conversations a way that has helped that make sense to people of that? It's not individual pieces that is cut up like that. Like we're kind of traditionally taught. I'm trying to get there. Um, I can do it when I work with someone in person, because like we were talking about earlier, if someone comes to me for a shoulder issue, it's likely that they're also going to get their hands, their wrist, their elbow checked out. They're also going to get something in their hip checked out. They're going to get something in their abdomen checked out. So they're going to get so many more pieces than what their actual hurt area is looked at. And oftentimes it's going to be one of those weird pieces that gets them out of their shoulder pain. And it's very rarely going to be me actually working on their shoulder that does it. So the buy-in is really huge when someone comes to me and their shoulder hurts and I spend five minutes working on their forearm and their shoulder doesn't hurt anymore. And they're like, I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> so they then trust that that where it hurts isn't necessarily the problem. And I mean, kind of going back to, to anatomy trains. Uh, so Tom Myers, his mentor was Ida Rolf. And one of her iconic sayings was where you think it is, it ain't. So she already knew back in sixties and seventies that there was this connection. And oftentimes where we feel the pain is not where the pain is coming from. It's just the kind of weakest link in the chain that's being tugged on. So if we have tension, 
if you have an anchor and you're pulling at the other side, you're going to feel the most force where the anchor is and less force where you are actually pulling. Uh, so that's kind of how I view the body and see it. That, um, and the model that I use, we have these, these centers of perception and we have these centers of coordination. So the fascial system, we always talk about it separating everything, but to me, the, the best thing it does is it, it connects everything. It coordinates everything. So we will have these areas that is kind of this summation of different forces. Uh, so kind of where force vectors come together, they will perceive the, the strain on the joint. And then we have another area that, so that point is usually where we feel our pain, that those points are usually in the shoulder, in the elbow, in the wrist, like in the joints. And this is where we generally perceive pain and perceive the motion. But then we also have the areas that coordinate those muscle fascial, uh, neurons all together and with those center. So centers of coordination that have to actually get everything working together. That's where, if we have an issue with the fascia, we're going to get that pain in the center of perception in person. It works great. And this is absolutely something that I've, I think about every day is how do I get everyone to understand this and listen to this and buy into it. And it does seem like more people are starting to, to pay attention to it. Um, but old habits die hard. And, uh, I hope within the next year I have a little bit better, more concrete of an answer. Um, and that's kind of what my Instagram is. It's, it's me thinking in public, thinking out loud. Uh, I don't have all the answers and they're not all perfect. And if someone sees something that looks ridiculous, call me out on it. I want to know what other people are thinking about this. And unfortunately, most people don't challenge anything I've said yet. And I, I I'd say often, I'd rather be proven wrong than proven right. Um, because then I learn. So I'm just, I'm throwing stuff out there to the best of my knowledge. I don't always get it right. And it, yeah, um, it's, it's always a work in progress, man. <laughs> Well, that, uh, that, uh, that mindset kind of fits in perfectly with this podcast. Cause we talk all the time about like, there are no experts kind of approach to training. Cause as soon as, as soon as you lose that kind of thought process, like everything, you feel like you have all the answers and then you're not kind of progressing. Uh, yeah. but I'm interested. So we have a ton of strength coaches listening to this podcast and you, you taught, you're talking a lot about manual therapy and being able to work with your clients in person in the, almost in the front end of things. What is something that a strength coach can use with their athletes and we can start implementing with our athletes to hopefully is, is it, can we avoid these issues? So they don't have to come to somebody like you to like, have to be worked on with the, like with the pain in the first place, or what's kind of, what's kind of your thought process with the like fascial approach in the strength world, in the sports performance world to work with these athletes without having to like the, the strength coach, it doesn't have the ability to manual, like have manual therapy on their, their athletes themselves. So is there, is there a training program that you kind of think about and work on implementing? So, I mean, I'm biased, but first and foremost, I think that if you are a strength coach and if you are a manual therapist, you should have relationships with other people, you know? So me as a manual therapist, I have people that I trust to send patients to, to help them work on their movement. And I think it goes the other way. And one thing that kind of, it seems like people are afraid that 
if you refer someone to someone else that you're going to lose that person as, you know, a client or whatever, but God, 99 times out of a hundred, that person is then going to be even more loyal to you because you referred them out because you're showing that you actually care about what's going on with them. They're, they're going to stick with you forever. Uh, so first and foremost, find some people that you trust, uh, get some manual therapy yourself, figure out who you like and build a relationship with that person. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be someone that you bring onto your staff or anything like that, but the people that are super interested in it, you can refer them out. And then as they start getting good results from that, they're going to tell everybody else. And it's really synergistic. The better their body can work, the better they can accept load, the better they can work hard. Uh, less pain means more strength. Um, so I, that that's the first step of it. Uh, the second piece would be in an ideal world. Yes. I think you can avoid ever having to send someone to get fixed, but it takes a lot of time and it, uh, you would have to be really strict about watching for players compensations. So you need a good assessment model. Um, doesn't matter what you use. If you like some of the more popular assessment models, great. If you don't, just as long as you have something that can figure out whether your athlete is compensating in some way, uh, you know, we can see if athletes have tight hip flexors and the way that they move, we can see these different tightnesses and stiffnesses. So if they have a tightness, stiffness, it's going to affect them in some other way. And we need to be able to address those issues. So, uh, really, giving them a lot of homework, making sure that they're doing the stuff to really hammer out their weaknesses while they're not with you, or even baking it into, you know, five or 10 minutes pre or post your, your strength stuff is a good way to do that. Um, but it, it really, so we get these stiffnesses in our body because humans are incredibly good at compensating. That's, that's one of our gems. Uh, so when we're a kid, we haven't yet had to compensate, right? As a baby, we spontaneously learn how to move. No one coaches us on how to get up and walk and start running, right? Um, you, you couldn't coach someone through that. It's just, it's built in. Uh, and then over time, we get to little bumps and bruises, right? We fall down, uh, you know, we fall off our bike, we are playing sports and something happens and we get a little tweak and kids aren't going to PT unless it's super severe. Uh, they're just being kids using their body, you know, just rub some dirt on it, shake it off, whatever. Uh, and then that kid is now going to have a slight compensation. So they're going to have to use their body a little bit different to do the same task that they were doing before. And that's okay. So uh, you get about 20 or so compensations. Most people, you get about 20 or so compensations and then you start getting into this pain area. Um, and this isn't a, a solid number. It depends on if you have hypermobility because hypermobility means you're going to have a little bit more laxity in your fascial network. Um, but in general, uh, so I say this because there's the points that I work on in the body. Um, once you accumulate about 20 of them, you're, you're more likely to start having pain in some area because it becomes this cumulative effect. So we need to find those compensations and deal with those compensations, but it's really hard to figure out 
what happened when they were five years old that they can't remember that they're not telling us about. Uh, so if we can unwind some of those compensations and you can train them around them, then you would theoretically never have to send them to someone. So then the third part would be, okay, compensations are way too hard to figure out. Let's just give them better compensations. So this is where I think strength coaches can continue to do it. And I think sometimes this is where strength coaches miss the boat with just adding more and more and more load to these people. Um, especially when we get it in just the sagittal plane. Uh, so when we're not working rotational stuff, when we're not working diagonal stuff. So when we're not connecting how our right hip functions with our left shoulder, um, when we're not doing that stuff, we're just, we're giving them strong compensations, but if their sport requires any rotation or any lateral movement, and we haven't given them a strong compensation in those patterns, then they're just going to end up hurt. What I think you can, we've talked a little bit about ISOs and you say you get questions all the time about ISOs. And I look at ISOs completely different than what I've, I've heard you guys talk about. Uh, so ISOs for me are a way to reinforce the fascial system. So with an ISO for me, I'm not working at maximum effort. I'm working at maybe 20, 30, 40% of what their maximum contraction would be. I'm always working at an end range of motion. And most of the time, the end range that I'm working on is going to be in a stretched position. So if I were doing ISO for the chest and pec, I would make sure I have the chest or I'd have the arm stretched out so that the chest was in a stretched position and work the ISO from there. Um, you can also work the ISOs the other way where you're in kind of a maximum contraction position. And that seems to be a little bit better with, with strength, um, working maximal strength. But if we want to think about how the fascial system remodels, it requires attention to do it. It requires a stretch. So a stretch in the fascial system will stimulate a cell called a fibroblast. And the fibroblast in response will start laying down collagen fibers in whatever line of tension that was. So if we want, and this is why isometrics are very specific and they're only within like 10 degrees of, of whatever joint angle you do is because it's only good for that line of tension. So if we have someone who throws an overhead athlete that throws, we should have different ISOs for them than someone who is a baseball player who isn't a pitcher, you know, who is just uh, swinging a bat. Like they're going to need a different compensation to make them strong and stable in their sport than someone else. So each position, each sport would have to be a little bit different if we're thinking about how to treat the fascial system with isometric exercises. And, and that's, that's where I'm at with that stuff. And is that third, you, you mentioned that 30% number is the reason for that 30% load because it's the extreme range of motion and we're not able to handle more in that range of motion, or is there a reason that you're using that kind of 30% number? So it's not load. It's the maximum voluntary contraction. So if you can bring your pec into, you know, a, a tolerable stretch, so it doesn't have to be, you know, hundred percent, but bring it to, you know, 90%, you're like, Ooh, that feels like a good stretch. And then you try to push that hand into against the wall as hard as you can. That would give you a hundred percent maximum voluntary contraction, right? So that would be a max effort ISO. Uh, so 
a lot of the research is showing it's not in humans yet, unfortunately, but looking at how collagen structures adapt, um, it looks like the high intensity um, forces don't work any better than the low intensity ones. So if I want an adaptation, I want the least amount of effort for the most amount of adaptation. So if I'm having someone do 100% effort, it's going to be really taxing. So this is where I think it's really cool that you guys do really hard ISOs because it's a totally different thing. It's so much like don't quit. Like that's what it is uh, where I don't need that. I want them to be able to do this many times without getting tired because we need to keep repatterning that fascial system as much as we can. So if we're going 30 to 40%, we're still in that stretch. We're still getting adaptation and we're not getting more adaptation at that hundred percent. It's just working other things as well. So when I'm focusing on dysfascia, it doesn't make any sense to do just anything other than the lightest that we can possibly do. Um, and it, it still does make you stronger. Uh, it's still really cool for strength. It's still, um, really good for preventing injuries for working on things that would otherwise be kind of sketchy. Um, so working on positions that might cause injury at like high speeds or high loads, um, I think are really cool uses training positions of injury basically. Right. Um, and using ISOs for that at low effort at low contraction is a really good way to build the integrity of the joint, so that if you do have a contact sport or you do have a really fast sport where things shift and change really quickly, that maybe if we have a little bit more integrity in that joint, that when something unexpected happens, your body is able to now have a good compensation and absorb all those forces instead of just snapping. Like we're seeing constantly with the NFL offseason right now. And what's, so now that it's at 30% and you said you're able to relayer that like fascial line more times now because it's less, how, what, what's your sets and reps looking like uh, time will not, well, like time-wise, like how much, how many, is it ridiculous or is it like minimum <laughs> load, but you're able to do it like a couple of times a day? Like how, how are you kind of doing that? Yeah. So I'm a climber and um, what really got me into looking at this. So climbers have just tons of finger injuries. That's most common climbing injury. Um, and uh, one of my friends is, extremely good climber, like, um, high end, high end. And he constantly struggled with finger injuries. And he found this, this guy on YouTube who was posting this protocol based off of some, some collagen research. Uh, and he sent it to me. So I took a look at the actual research and then I adapted it to how I thought the research was actually saying. And with what I do with ISOs is a, it's a pulse. So it look, the research looks like, um, if you are doing one second on one second off for an ISO, you're getting maximum collagen stimulation. So the way I do this, uh, is with pulsing for one second and I do 45 second sets. So I just have a person or for myself, but we just put a stopwatch on and then at every even second. We hold it for one second. And then on that odd second, we relax for one second. So we're pulsing. So we're going, okay, contract, relax, contract, relax, contract, relax. Again, 30%. So after that 45 seconds, 
you start feeling a little bit, but you're not exhausted. You're not tired, anything like that. We get 15 second full rest. We go in again, um, depending on what you're doing and how much you need, you can continue doing this for 10 minutes. So it looks like the collagen synthesis kind of maxes out at about 10 minutes. Um, so I apply that too. And then you get a refractory period of six hours. So you could theoretically do it first thing in the morning. You could then do it six hours later and you could do it once before bed. So for super motivated people that have something that's really bothering them three times a day, you're not going to notice that it's fatiguing you. It's not going to take any strength away from you, anything like that. Um, and a lot of people I've had do this report that their joints just, they feel better when they do this. Um, so that's, that's something that can really be baked in and put into it. Um, but that's also then how I stretch. So, uh, you know, kind of saying stretching isn't the greatest thing. Well, this is how we make it better. We still go into whatever we feel our stretch. And instead of now just holding it, we're active. So now if we're in a lunge position for that one second contraction, I can, my front leg, I can smash into the ground. Like I'm trying to curl my leg toward me and my back leg, I can kind of pull, like I'm trying to pull my hip forward and I can do this kind of scissors contraction and then relax and then contract and relax. And I'm still getting the benefit of being able to stretch, but now I'm also reinforcing the collagen structure, the passive stability of these positions so that theoretically my muscles now have to do less stabilization in these positions, allow them to produce force instead of have to lock things down. And you have brought up the, the hamstring thing multiple times. Are there certain exercises that you are kind of implementing to kind of work? Cause that the hamstring one is super common and we're going to hear about it even more now that uh, mini camps and rookie camps or whatever are starting in the NFL. So now it's just, I mean, the, the spike in it is crazy, but uh, you were talking before it's, it's the, uh, the muscles are way too strong compared to tendons and ligaments. What specifically with the hamstrings are you looking at kind of where you would be comfortable sending an athlete into camp being like, all right, they're ready for the hamstrings are ready for that. Uh, I mean, so back to tensegrity, right? I want to know that they have good hip flexor extensibility. I want to know that they don't have super tight hip flexors because if we have tight hip flexors and you're going to find this on most athletes and in a sense, you do want that because it helps with the force generation. Uh, but if their hip flexors are super tight and they're unable to even touch their toes, then I know that their hip flexors are impeding the ability for the hamstring to lengthen. So I would then give them the same ISOs to try to stabilize the hamstring in a stretched position. Uh, and, um, I think there's also a lot of kind of adductor play when we're talking about what's going on with the hamstring, because the adductor magnus is so massive. The attachment is literally right next to where the hamstrings are, but it, to me, it has a lot better mechanical advantage on the pelvis and the actual kind of uprighting of the pelvis than the hamstrings do. The hamstrings want to create force. They want to help with propelling you. Uh, the adductors actually want to stable the stabilize the pelvis. So I'm going to look at how are their adductors, how are their hip flexors, and I'm going to probably give them some kind of isos that iso stretches kind of that are going to address whatever they need on that. Um, we're going to check to see if 
their hamstrings are better or worse when their knee is bent. So we can see, we can bias the tissue. We can bias the, the hamstring tissue at either the pelvis or we can bias at the knee. And we can see, does one need more than the other? And again, depending on the sport, you know, and what their, what their demands are even in their sport, different position players are going to need different things. I'm not going to have a wide receiver do the same thing as I would have a lineman do. Um, but that's, that's how I would clear it. And then, um, I mean, give them some, some foam rolling that they could do on their own. Uh, I, I don't actually use foam rollers. I usually tend to use kind of semi soft, um, balls that are a little squishy. I don't think it needs to be a rock hard. Like, I don't think you need to be smashing with lacrosse balls to get a good effect. Um, so I would do that. And that's mainly for kind of flushing the tissue. So when we put just a pressure on an area, if we think of the fascia as this kind of sponge, because it's just a bunch of fibers that are soaked in this liquid. So what we want to do with foam rolling is we want to push that fluid out. When we put the pressure on the tissue, it forces all that fluid out like we're squeezing a sponge. And then when we take that pressure off, all that fluid can come back into an area. And hopefully by then the fluid has made its circle around the body. It's part of the circulatory system. Uh, so it's, it's really closely linked to the lymphatic system, which is linked to the blood system. So it's all one pool. Um, so we want to have them do that just to help with the recirculation of all these fluids and try to slowly break down some of these areas that might have a little bit of stickiness. If you can't send someone to see someone specifically to work on an area, uh, I would say there's a certain set of spots you want to work on in the body and get them to, you know, if there's something tender, it can't handle pressure. There's too much stiffness in the fascia. So we want to spend a couple of days, a couple of weeks working on that tenderness. And if we can't make that go away in a couple of weeks, we want to send them out to someone who can deal with that. And when you're looking at, you, you've described working a couple of muscles with the ISOs, are there specific ISOs like position wise that you can describe the people that they're looking at? Is it like, are you looking at like Copenhagen's and like kind of Cossack lunges ISOs? Are there specific ones where you're trying to find uh, a specific position or something different that you think the people probably aren't doing that probably could be? Sure. Uh, so uh, someone who's really popular right now and he's over toes guy. Um, so his, his lunge, I find is a really good position for an ISO. Um, and I really like it because I'm a climber. I have to drive my knees over my toes. Like that's part of my sport. Um, so I will play with that position and try to almost like I'm trying to pull my legs apart as much as possible and get that maximum tension in between one leg and the other. Uh, so I'll, I'll put people into that kind of lunge where your knee is way over your toe. I'll even have them come up onto the ball of their foot because that seems to get a little bit more uh, same side hip flexor engagement, which I really like for that. That cramps me up like crazy. I've, I've never had anything <laughs> as effective at cramping me. Uh, by the way, I love cramping. I think cramping is incredible. Uh, I think it's the brain's way of reconnecting with an area. Uh, and I don't think cramps should be avoided. I think they should be embraced. They suck. I hate them. But the more you cramp an area up from my experience and from other people that I've had do it that can handle it, 
the less you will begin to cramp over time. So my athletes are going to hate you for saying that. (laughs) (laughs) It's cramp day guys. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, so that's what I like Um, going into the knees over toes position, uh, the, the forward lunge. Um, So ball of the foot, the back leg, I like to bias internal rotation in the back leg. So in extension, um, I think the hip is, it, it works best when you're in extension and, uh, internal rotation. So I'll get that back leg trying to internally rotate as much as I can get it to do. And then I'm holding myself in there. I can grab in between the, the cage of, you know, like a, a workout cage and to stabilize myself. And then I'm just trying to create friction in the ground. So my feet don't move. And then I'm trying to scissors my legs back closed to closer to each other, um, to try to bring myself out of that lunge position, but obviously not strong enough that I'm actually winning that. So I still get that little contraction, relax, little contraction, relax. Uh, and that's been something that's been really cool for me lately. Um, and you can do the same thing with just going into, uh, kind of a split position. So standing, just let your legs go out as much as you can and try to kind of bring the floor closer to you and then relax, bring the floor closer. And while you're there, if you want to do the other ISOs too. So those would be the long tissue ISOs, right? Where we're activating the stretch tissues, but you can also then alternate between doing the short ones. So you could alternate between trying to bring the ground to you and then trying to push the ground away, similar to how you would do like a sumo deadlift, right? Where you're trying to spread the floor. Um, you can work an ISO with that. So any of these positions, you can do the short and the long in the same position if you wanted to. So if you wanted to make it both a stretch and a little bit of a strength thing, you could, so the knees over toes position, you could then uh, really try to close that hip angle on the front, right? Try to get that as, as worked as possible. And then in the back, you could try to almost lift that back leg off the ground and try to get some extra extension in the hip. Um, so it's just, it's all principles. These apply to anything, any positions that you like, any positions that your athletes will find a little precarious in competition. It's a perfect position for a low effort ISO that you can then get them a little bit more security and a little bit more stability in those tissues so that if something goes down and they have to cope with something that hopefully their body is a little bit more resilient, the fascia can spread those forces out a little bit instead of having to go right into one tissue and you get tears and pulls and all that. No, I love that example because you talk about in the world of football, American football, like you're you're most likely going to be put in a position that you ideally don't want to be into. And now, like like you mentioned, like uh, I like that split ISO. That's something I haven't thought of. But you you get that hamstring in that long stretch range. It's like yeah. ideally we don't want to get there in the first place. But in a contact sport or any sport where you're like perceiving and reacting to something, you're going to get in positions you don't love being in. So hopefully, in a controlled manner we can get you semi used to being in those and the body prepared for those positions. So when they do inevitably happen on the field or the court, we are faring a little bit better. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, that, cause that's what I like about that position. That lunge position is that it puts you into nearly max hip flexion and then you have uh, knee flexion going on at the same time, which would, happen a lot in a sport, you'd be starting to go into hip flexion and then you would have your foot coming out and you'd have to start 
pulling with that hip to get you somewhere. And that's where I think a lot of guys are tweaking these hamstrings because it's not from them having a straight leg. Like the, the athletics don't really have those positions, right? You're always in a little bit of a bent hip, bent knee position. So if we start thinking about, okay, let's train maximum bent, we should be able to kind of work with the, the hamstring issues that we're having and, and solidify those a little bit. And before we, uh, we kind of draw ourselves out into the rapid fire round and wrap this up, I'm interested in the, uh, the hanging ISO that you've, you've been showing. I've, I've never seen the one arm hang into the opposite arm low. Can you just kind of describe what you're doing there? Yeah. Uh, it's just, so it's something that I got. I, I think you, you had a podcast with Austin, uh, Einhorn, I think is his name. Uh, so I don't even know how I came about him. Um, I think someone on, I, I was, I was doing these hangs. So I also, I just, I love hanging. I think it's incredible for shoulder health, uh, being a climber. I think it's indispensable, but for everyone, I think everyone should hang. It's, it's just, it shows you how to keep your body organized when you have an external load in this sense, it's gravity, it's gravity trying to pull you apart. Uh, so I posted a story and I was doing this hang where I, I hang and then I'm using my, my external and internal rotators to rotate myself all the way into one and then rotate myself all the way to the other. Um, and it's this massive stretch and this activation at the end range. And I, I do it every time I'm going to climb and it's, it's been really cool. Uh, so I was then I posted that and someone's like, Oh, you probably like uh, team Aprios. And I was like, oh, okay. So I checked out his stuff and he does a, real, a lot of really cool stuff with hanging and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so he, I don't, I, he might've been doing, he said like he wants his athletes to have a certain time for hanging from one arm and being a climber, I can hang, like I can do that for days. So I started thinking, okay, how can we start making this more challenging? So I, I have two different hangs that I'm playing with right now. Uh, three actually. So one of them is hanging with either one or two arms and having a kettlebell hooked on my foot. And so that, that load is pulling me even more, forcing me to stabilize, keep my breath good so that my back doesn't overarch. Cause that's going to be one of the big things that happen as the hip flexors are starting to get tired, your back's going to start to arch. So trying to keep that organized, keep my breath solid with that. Uh, that's one way I do it. Um, and that that's hard because you have to hold that weight with the foot. Uh, another way I do it is to grab uh, a big med ball, like the heavy ones and squeeze it in between my knees. Um, so now I'm activating the adductors, which I think help with the pelvic stability and I'm hanging with that. And that one's a little bit easier. That one's fun. And then the one you're talking about that I've started to play a lot with is, uh, taking a load and one side. So right hand holding a kettlebell and then left hand hanging. And while I'm hanging, I'm usually also trying to do like a couple like scapular pull-ups. So not bending the elbow at all, but just getting scapular motion in there. Uh, and today I did that and I got to 60 pounds today. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to see where the, the limit is. Like, can I get to holding body weight? I've already been thinking like, can I hold a, a barbell because it's going to have a totally different load. It's going to, it's going to want to rotate me and the the leverage on it is going to be massive. Um, so fighting that will be really interesting too. But, uh, I just, I think there is 
such a value in it because it does so many things. You can load it in so many different ways. It's so common to just load with like a weight belt and have more load there. But I think you miss out on so much and it changes the whole mechanics of how you're doing things. Now, if you're doing a pull-up and you have your load all at the waist, it's going to pull you kind of in this arched position, which is going to cause you to lean back a little bit more. And now we have this whole kind of over arched, overextended spine that I don't want. I don't want to see that in an athlete. I want to, I want to see them be able to stabilize it. So, uh, with fascia, I it's specificity. Um, we take the shapes of the positions we're in the most. So if we're constantly putting ourselves in these overarched positions, and this is where paying attention to athletes. And I know it's, it's not cool to adjust people's form anymore. It's just let them do whatever they want. <laughs> um, but I, I think there's, there's value into thinking of how we can set them up to have the best postures in these positions. So loading at the feet it's first of all, it's limiting because it, it hurts the foot. It's hard to put a ton of load there, but it also forces you because now the lever is so long. Cause it's like, you have super heavy feet. Now it puts a lot more load into the core, uh, which then you have to stabilize while you're hanging instead of just putting a massive weight at your waist. So it just, it becomes something that works on, you know, we can hit the front chain. We can hit uh, these big slings based on how we have this weight. And, you know, I have weight in my right arm near my hip. It's going to translate the force into that left arm that's hanging. So I can start working with these muscle slings and, and training the body in the least isolated ways possible. Well, you, you, one of the things that you've brought up a couple of times in the podcast and before we started recording is like low hanging fruit. And that's why mm -hmm. you, you find like fascia so interesting. And that's something that I found in climbing and hanging is you, you have a climbing background, but I would say 95% of the athletes that I've met, like have zero, zero hanging background. Like, and it's mm -hmm. like, you, you have them hang from something. And the first time, like almost every time it's like 30 seconds. It's like, you can hold your body weight for 30 seconds. No, nothing else. It was just 30 is like the hands broke. It was like so many <laughs> issues. There's so many low, like, like you said, sure. low hanging pieces of fruit that you could work on for 10 days and see improvement. And that was something like when I, when I played football, I, I, like, I would be shocked if I was able to do more than two pull-ups and there's no way I could hang past a minute, not a chance. And I also had like, horrible elbow and shoulder pain and like numbness in my fingers is like, and I, I had Shocking. no idea, yeah. I had no idea about any of this, but I started to, uh, when I re got into this world, started high, uh, hanging and climbing and, uh, doing some of these things and it's magically gone. It was the only change. And, you know, and you just start to look at these pieces and it's like, all right, we could, we could implement this with so many people and hopefully eliminate so many of the issues that we already have. Yeah. I, I mean, that's like, my, my second evangelical thing of at least of the moment is everyone that will listen to me, I'm telling them that they need to hang. <laughs> like that's like, you got to spend time hanging. You have a shoulder injury. Okay. You hang like you're dealing with this. Okay. You hang like it, there's just so much it cause we can coach it or we can make it a competition. Like, you know, you can get 10 guys along a long bar and you can have them compete to see who can hang the longest. Like, you do all those time things often. And I think that's really cool. Uh, but yeah, you can gamify it. You can, you can really get into it. If it's more like physical therapy, you can adjust someone's pelvis a little bit and you can get them to feel what they should be feeling. 
Um, you can add motion through the shoulder blades. You know, it, it, there's so much to it. And this idea that grip strength is a predictor of overall strength, um, that kind of leads into it. And I'm kind of of the camp that, uh, our grip sucks because the other tissue suck and it's just kind of a fail safe. Like if our other tissue suck, your hands are just going to be like, no, bro, you can't, you can't do that. That's not for you. Uh, <laughs> so with hanging, we're able to work all of that at the same time. We can work the integrity of all the tissues, get the grip grip going a little bit, but yeah, for me, it was, I think I saw a video like a year or two ago of like some, at some like fitness conference or something, they were like paying people a hundred dollars if they could hang from a bar for a hundred seconds. And I was like, are you kidding me? People can't do that. Like that was, <laughs> that was my first thought. So like immediately I went and did it. I was like, yeah, this is no problem for me. So I had to start loading and seeing where it happens. And I, over the next couple of months, I'm going to keep pushing and I'm going to see how much weight I can, I can get on and in weird positions and see what I can do with it. So, yeah, yeah I, I love that. Um, one final question. I, I brought that up before, but final question before I get into rapid fire rounds, how do you balance not getting caught too much into like the research weeds? You, you've mentioned fascia being, like all you think about and like all, all you want to dive into, but you do a really nice job of bringing it back into kind of the practical world and not becoming uh, the researcher, the researcher in the bad sense of like, you, you, you're staying so far disconnected and having skin in the game that what you're kind of looking at and saying doesn't really apply. Whereas I feel like you do a nice job of balancing that. How, how, how do you do that? How do you not get sucked in too far one way or too far the other way where you're only practicing and you're not looking at any of the research? Uh, lots of time. It takes a lot of time. Uh, but so I'm, I'm really interested in education. Uh, so I, I teach at the San Francisco school of massage and it's just a basic massage program, $600 program. And most of these people have no science background whatsoever. I do have a science background. Uh, I went to school for biology. So, um, I did some research while I was in college. Uh, and I, I have a really big interest. Um, I, I like reading research papers for fun. That's something I do, which blows people's minds. Uh, but to me, it, it informs our practice. Like it's each research paper is the only reason I'm reading it is so that I can be a better practitioner. So I can help people get over whatever it is that's bothering them quicker so that they can return to play. Uh, because I'm not the kind of person that I want to see you every week for the rest of your life. Like that's dumb. Uh, if I see someone more than five weeks in a row, I've screwed something up. It, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and the whole time I'm seeing someone, it's always, okay, we're going to do a treatment on you. And then I want you to go push your body as much as you're comfortable doing. So whatever that thing that you couldn't do because you were hurt, I want you to try it a little bit and report back to me. Um, because that's, that's our goal. Like if we're treating someone for anything other than that, we're just taking their money and that's nonsense. Like I'm so not money driven so that I just can't wrap my head around that. Uh, but for me, all the research I read has to come back to, okay, what can I do with this now? Cause I, I read a lot of research that I'm like, Oh, that's cool. But I can't do anything with that. Uh, but the stuff I post on Instagram, is stuff that I've read a couple papers and tried to synthesize these ideas and put them all together and how can they actually apply to what we're doing? Cause that's, that's the ultimate goal. Like I, I get a little frustrated by researchers that are just putting out these really very narrow scope studies that are not really showing anything. And 
then you'll have someone run with it on social media and be like, Oh, see, this thing does this, or this doesn't do this. And research is so flawed. It's so screwed up. It, it points us in the right direction, but we ultimately have to make that call. Uh, so that's, that's just how I have to see it is, um, each bit of research should make me a little bit better, but nothing is ever going to be groundbreaking enough for me to totally flip my practice over, you know, it's, each thing gets me an incremental spot closer or farther away from where I'm at now. Well, and I think that's having enough like foundation in yourself and who you are and you're like, you are the ultimate decision maker and letting everything, like you said, kind of direct and add to your decisions rather than what you see a lot is like you said, the stuff like that research comes in and that's suddenly your idea, your foundation is like, you just read one paper. Like, and like you said, that tweet about yeah. it a bunch. Of, yeah. So I, I think, <laughs> or that's you awesome. just learn, you know, some, you just took some workshop and now, Oh my God, I have to do every, like if, if you, if your model was that fragile, it's still fragile. You yep. need to still figure things out. And when I teach, I teach a lot of principle-based stuff. So a lot of the students I know get a little frustrated because I don't show them exact like routines like, oh, okay, we're going to do some back work tonight. A lot of the teachers will like show them a routine. They'll be like, okay, you do this and then this and then this. And I don't ever do that. I am, I'm like, okay, we have strategies. If we look at this area here, we have to figure out why this area is like this. And we have to think about the tools that we can use to get there. And I know it's not for everyone. I know it's very hard to understand, uh, but it sets you up because at some point, once you learn all these principles, at some point, something's going to click and you're going to go, oh, okay, now I can do anything, right? Instead of just emulating everybody and copying all these things, if you base all your stuff on principles, this principle first idea, then it doesn't matter what you're trying to do or what exercise you're giving to someone or what treatment methodology you're using. If it's all based on the principle of something and you have a principle system, then you can plug and play anything and you know whether or not it's valid if it goes with your set of principles. I read uh, Zen and the Art of Archery this morning, just finished it up. And you sound like the master of the uh, <laughs> the people in there. They were, they were talking about, uh, it's not so much like the bow and arrow that matters. It, it's kind of like the principles, how, how you got there, how you, what that kind of journey led to. And it was funny. It, like you said, your students get frustrated. He was talking about how his student was getting frustrated because he's like, yeah. show me a tangible piece. And it's like, all right, that answers that that immediate problem that is super small where we could be chasing something much larger. Yep. Exactly. Awesome. Well, rat, let's hit the rapid fire rounds before we get out of here. And I got two questions here for you before we end it. And the first one is what are some of your favorite books? And I would prefer <laughs> if we could get a, uh, a nerdy in the field book and then maybe an okay. out of the field book for us. Oh man. I have so many books. Uh, I, I kind of joke that I'm, I'm one of the only people that still reads anything. Um, <laughs> So I read, I read, uh, things that have to do with passion. I read things that have to do with business because how am I supposed to grow myself if I don't? And then I read stuff on how to make my life a little bit better. Um, so I think one of the best books that people could read in, in the kind of more SC uh, world, um, without having to get super deep into fascia, uh, will be, um, what's called, uh, muscle slings in sport. 
So this was like the OG text for, I think it was written in the fifties. Um, this is one of the, he's not the first one to think about it, but he was one of the first guys to start publishing this information, um, about how muscles worked in groups and chains. And if we think even more about it, it's not even just muscles. It's the whole fascial system covering the muscles that do that. Uh, but it's, it's a really cool way to see perspective on there is no such thing as isolation that when we have an athlete do certain things, many things are happening, even if we don't see it happening. Um, so I think that is, is a really great book, um, to get started on this idea that everything is connected. Uh, what was the other kind of book you want to know about? <laughs> just, just, uh, just an out of the field book. Maybe it's a di different, ha uh, hobby, or maybe it's one of the self betterment books that you're talking about, but a uh, book that's from out of the field. Uh, so there's a book called the business of expertise. So for me as by David C. Baker, um, he is, he, he works with different, uh, kind of marketing firms, design firms, something like that. And he, so on, uh, uh, was it office space? The Bobs? Did you see that movie? I don't think so. <laughs> so there, this movie office space, there's these two guys that come in to like restructure the company. And, uh, that's basically what this guy does. So he's seen a lot of things that have gone wrong in business and all that, and how to establish yourself as an expert in different fields. And to me, that's, that's my biggest goal is, um, I can work on someone, I can do manual therapy on someone, but that isn't where my value is. I could teach someone how to do that to apply a technique. That's no problem. My biggest value is how I assess the person, how I see them, how they move. And then my mental model that I'm going to use to actually treat them. So my brain and how I understand things is much more valuable to how I can help someone than my hands, my elbows are. Uh, so even when I charge people, I don't, I don't have an hourly rate. I have a per session rate because I'm not trading dollars for hours. And I would like to see more people in strength and conditioning and in body work, that kind of thing, move toward that. Because the better we get at it, we get these people better, faster and faster and faster. And mm -hmm. if we're charging per hour, then we're, we're discounting yep. ourselves like inadvertently, like Get paid less uh, to be better. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So it, it doesn't make any sense to me. So the more we can think about how we can leverage our expertise at something. Uh, and I mean, a lot of people are doing this as online coaching and all that kind of stuff, which is one way to do it is scalable, but, uh, we need to think about how we think and how we synthesize things different from other people. And the better we get at that, that's what needs to command the more money. And it shouldn't be reliant on a per hour thing. It should be a, okay. Uh, so some model I'm kicking around that I haven't started yet is a, okay, you have this problem. It'll cost you this amount of money. If we get it done in a week, cool. If we get it done in eight weeks, cool. doesn't matter, but it's still a flat cost. So that's something that I would like to get to eventually. I'm not there yet. Um, but that'd, that'd I think, be ultimate skin in the game. Yeah, 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 exactly. Cause then they, they have, there's two thoughts, right? Like people would be like, Oh, you charged me $2,000 for one treatment. Okay. Like, but you're better in one treatment. So most people are going to be like, great. You fixed me in one treatment. But if I'm like, okay, it's $2,000 and now it takes 20 treatments. 
then I'm getting so much more or less an hour and you're just getting frustrated. So we both want it to happen as soon as possible. Uh, so the business of expertise is a really great book for thinking about how being an expert is something that's really important. Boom. I love that. All right. Last question of the podcast before I let you go here. Uh, and this is when the fascist stuff's over the, the, the whole yeah. expertise approach is over and you're on the deathbed. What do you kind of want your legacy to be through all of this, through accomplishing all these things and diving into all these rabbit holes? I want to be the, the fascial strength guy. I want to, to be the guy that starts introducing this to the world of professional sport uh, to try to minimize these non-contact injuries, these injuries that are just making it less competitive. Uh, you know, it's, it's a shame when you see stars, anybody really get injured in the off season, in the preseason, uh, especially non-contact stuff. Cause it's all preventable if we work with the connective tissues in the way that we need to. Um, so that's, that's what I want. I want to be the pioneer who pushes forward so that we get more crazy games with incredible athletes and less like, Oh, when's this dude going to be back? Um, that would be a dream. That would be a dream. And that would make a lot of money if you did that. <laughs> so you wouldn't have to worry about the procession raid. The NBA would take care of you, but coach, thanks for being on. This is awesome. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.